sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches. The past unburied. The books unsealed. The old celebration returning. Hello, and welcome to my study. Uh, please come in and have a seat. All the uh, books surrounding you are those used to research our show, and the individual to my right here, along with managing domestic duties, serves as our reader for any passages that will be directly quoted from these sources. Her name is Mrs. Carswell. So you're not going to say hello? Well, it starts with a hello, but I'm not sure I want to use it now. You can still say hello. Oh, well, yes. Hello. But I don't need to read this. Mrs. Carswell had a prepared statement addressing what happened in our last show. It doesn't feel right. I'm just going to go with the flow. Okay. But I do want to thank all the listeners who wrote in with kind words. Yes, I, I told you. You and the bees actually did a good job. The tune was quite recognizable. You've told me a million times. It, it's fine. It's fine. Oh, I was just starting to worry about you when you wouldn't come out, even to eat. Well, thank you for leaving the toast. It, it, it didn't pop up all the way out. It was toasted. I realize that's just how it works after a few... Some things are simpler than we make them. Yes. You just go with the flow. I guess that's my slogan now. You do seem better flow, now. Flow, flow, flow. <laughs> oh, that's, that's me. I guess it is. People were very kind to reach out. Would you say that I'm sassy? Sassy? Someone was saying that, but in a good way. I got lots of pep talks. One woman wanted to come over and have a girls' night and drink wine, but she lives in Chicago. And you don't drink. She said she could take a greyhound if she could smuggle her cat on board, but she mainly seems to want to complain about her ex, and someone actually said I should get a cat. No. Several people suggested I socialize online. I guess Zoom is a way people stay in touch or social networking. Uh, someone suggested I get an OnlyFans, which I guess is like Facebook. I... And there were a few gentlemen messaging. That's who said I was sassy. One of them. But I really shouldn't kiss and tell. That's not quite... Do you mean the balloon guy? You mentioned something about someone into balloon. He wants to take me up in his balloon. Huh. But no, not him. I didn't mention this one. This one has a replica of the submarine in 2,000 leagues under the sea he's building. I think it's full size because he says he sleeps in it. Well, uh, good for you. Going with the flow. I'm very relieved. I wasn't sure what to do, if I should call someone. I have never felt better. 
There were a lot of dead bees in the kitchen trash. Uh, wet pillowcase full of dead bees. Okay. Uh, well, uh, anyway, uh, this is uh, episode 84, Grottoes. Caves of Wonder. I am your host, Al Ridenour, and this show, Bone and Sickle, examines the intertwining of horror and folklore in a historical context. I started the show as a way to further explore this area of intersection after writing my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. Bone and Sickle only exists thanks to the generosity of our Patreon donors who receive monthly rewards, including short bonus episodes. And we have a special offer running till the end of April, a chance for new subscribers to win the 15-disc set, All the Haunts Be Ours, a compendium of folk horror. I'll have more on Patreon and the giveaway at the end of our show. On February 14, 1858, a luminous presence was said to have appeared in a grotto, or more precisely, in a hollow of a rocky outcropping facing the river Gave de Po in the French Pyrenees Mountains. Fearing it might be something diabolical, one of the three girls present flung holy water at it. Another hurled a rock. Only one of the three could actually see this strange vision and her wide-eyed trance so alarmed her companions they tried to drag her away. When this failed, they ran to a nearby sawmill for help. The miller was able to carry her to his home where she was made to lie down. Those gathered round shared a sense of alarm but were divided as to whether the girl was to be nursed as one mentally afflicted or threatened as a troublemaker seeking attention. Certainly no one expected her to become a saint. But she would become a saint in a few years, Saint Bernadette of Lourdes. And the mysterious being in the rocks became the Virgin Mary. The addition of a miraculous spring appearing several days later completed the image we have today of Lourdes. This is Lourdes. A small town at the foot of the Pyrenees, that water is said to have miraculous powers of healing. That is why they come. Millions have preceded them. Large facsimiles of the shallow grotto of Lourdes can be found at Catholic shrines all over the world. Over 50 at last count, but the idea of grottos generally, as a place of supernatural interactions, goes back to the ancient Greeks, as does the practice of creating artificial grottos as sacred or liminal spaces. 
Bernadette Soubirou, who was only 14 at the time of the apparitions, was an undersized, sickly child, chronically afflicted with asthma. Her grasp of Catholic teachings was fairly limited as her catechism instruction was in French, which she barely understood as the Basques of her region spoke a dialect of Occitan. She was one of nine children, only four of which survived their childhoods. After sustaining an eye injury while working in a mill, her father experienced difficulty finding work, resulting in intermittent bouts of depression and drinking. As a sort of charity, the Subiru family had been provided rent-free accommodations in a facility formerly serving as the local jail, a small cell-like space that would fill with smoke when a fire was lit, which worsened Bernadette's asthma. As a way to make a little extra money for the family, Bernadette would sometimes collect and sell firewood. As the woods belonged to wealthy landowners, the poor would do their scrounging elsewhere, in places like the riverside by the rocky outcropping called the Masabiel, which overhung what would become the Holy Grotto. As unknown property, the area also served as the town's dumping ground and was a popular spot for swineherds to keep their animals, which rooted in the garbage. On February 11th, Bernadette, her sister, and a friend from the neighborhood were bound for the Masabel to hunt for firewood, branches, or driftwood, or even animal bones for ragged bone men who would sell these for processing into fertilizer or soap. As Bernadette approached the grotto, she encountered some streams in the bank and stopped for a moment to remove her shoes to avoid getting them wet. And it's at this very moment she experienced the first of 18 visions she would report over the next months. This from an account she wrote in 1864. I heard a noise. I looked towards the meadow and saw that the trees were not moving, so I looked up at the grotto. It was one of the openings in the rock. I saw a bush swaying as if moved by a strong wind. Almost at the same time, a golden light appeared in the cave. And soon afterwards, a lady, young and beautiful, especially beautiful, like no one I had ever seen, came to stand in the oval opening of the cave above the bush. She was wearing a white robe with a blue sash. She had a golden rose on each foot the same color as her rosary beads. The material of her robe and her veil were like nothing that can be seen on earth. She was surrounded by a light like the sun, but gentle on the eye. Hearing all this, you may immediately picture a standardized image of the Blessed Virgin, but the identity of the lady was not immediately recognized by Bernadette. The figure, whoever she was, would only smile and never speak, not until the third apparition several days later. In 1863, some time after the church later embraced the visions, the sculptor, Joseph-Hugues Fabiche, was commissioned to create the representation of the figure which now stands in the grotto. It was installed in a ceremony attended by 20,000 spectators and is the Marian image of Lourdes reproduced in churches and gift shops the world over. 
But Subiru was extremely disappointed when she saw the figure and insisted it looked nothing like her vision. It was far too tall and matronly. The 14-year-old, who herself was only 4 foot 7, herself regarded the lady she had seen as small. And while the word lady became most common in her written accounts, she initially perceived her as someone her own age, using the Occitan word reserved for females of a typically unmarried age. The sculptor did, however, conform to Subiru's account and certain other details, like the inclusion of a rosary, which the figure was said to be silently fingering as Bernadette herself prayed the rosary throughout the experience. When the rosary had finished, the lady went back into the rock and the golden light disappeared with her. What's strange to consider here is that the scene I first described involving throwing rocks and holy water of the apparition takes place in the second encounter, one after Bernadette is said to have witnessed the figure apparently praying with the rosary. Setting aside any questions about Bernadette's account being retroactively cleaned up to conform to church needs, even if she did initially perceive the apparition as an angel or indeed the Blessed Mother, it seems those around her soon frightened her into believing what she had seen could have been something unholy in disguise. If not the devil himself, then one of the many beings from local folklore said to inhabit the region's caves. The young visionary herself was explicitly uncertain as to what she had seen. When she first spoke of the apparition, she didn't use the word lady, instead quite pointedly calling it simply a quail, which in the local dialect was an evasive expression, only meaning that thing. This kind of awkward circumlocution in folk tales is related to the magic power of the true name used to summon a fairy being or cause it to vanish. Whether the apparition was initially perceived as something from that world is impossible to know, but comparisons have been made between the luminous being and what were called the Damas Blancas in Occitan, that is, the White Ladies or to similar beings known in the Pyrenees as les blanquettes, meaning something like little white ones. Oddly, Charles Dickens happened to have immersed himself in books of Pyrenees folklore long enough at least to produce an 1870 article for his magazine all the year round. In Superstitions of the Pyrenees, he writes, As to the fairies, they are still visible to the unsophisticated as they sit at the entrance of their grottoes, combing their golden hair. Additionally, in the Bairn Valleys, Le Blanquettes are also said to dwell in the cavern mouths, mountain peaks, dress in white, and often appear in a circular formation. The Gav River, upon which uh, the Lord Grotto is situated, flows through the Bairn Valley Dickens references here. In fact, in a multi-volume compilation of historical records surrounding the case, begun not long after the apparitions, it only finished in 1966, uh, one called, in English, uh, Authentic Documents, a story is quoted affirming that the Massipiel under which the grotto was located was indeed a subject of some powerful superstitions. Sometime before this extraordinary business, a woodcutter was coming from the forest with a load of wood on his back and passing Masabiera when it began to rain. 
he put down his load and went into the grotto for shelter. But a moment later, he heard the plaintive cries and groans of someone in great suffering. He was so afraid that he had to leave. He'd rather get drenched to the bone than stay there. Before Bernadette made her third visit to the grotto, two women, Jean-Marie Millet and Antoinette Perret, asked to accompany her in the belief that the being she had encountered was the restless spirit of an acquaintance of theirs who had recently died. A woman by the name of Elisa Latapi. The white robes and blue sash described by Soubirou sounded to them like the uniform of the religious order, the Children of Mary, to which Latapi belonged and was the uniform in which she was buried. They concluded that the pious woman had been allowed to return to convey to them some sort of holy message from the other side. They accompanied Bernadette to the grotto, insisting on bringing pen, paper, and ink pot with which she was to transcribe any marching orders provided by La Tapie's spirit. On this third visit, the lady did not identify herself as Elisa La Tapie, nor do any writing, but she does speak for the first time, requesting that Bernadette return every day for a fortnight. In subsequent visits, she calls for prayer and penance. At this point, the young visionary is accompanied on her visits by more than 200 spectators who, neither seeing nor hearing the apparition, were probably horrified to witness the entranced teenager rubbing her face with mud and chewing grass, both of which, we're told, have something to do with the requested penance it was Lent during which most of these visions occurred. Bernadette is also commanded to drink from a non-existent spring. At first, she can only understand this as a request to drink from the nearby river, but the lady insists there is a spring within the grotto. Subiru digs beneath a rock, coming up with the meager handfuls of muddy water, and finally obtaining, after three tries, something relatively clear, which she drinks. Not in expectation of a miracle, which she never experiences, but as an act of obedience. In subsequent visits, the spring begins to run clear, but it's only still later that miraculous properties are attributed to the water. While enthusiasm grows among the populace, there is also the predictable resistance by members of the clergy and more educated persons. On the 7th of April, a member of the latter class, the town physician, Dr. Pierre Dozul is in attendance at the 17th, the penultimate apparition. Subiru and her followers had lately begun carrying candles on evening visits to the grotto. Dozul reports observing Bernadette rise from a prayerful kneeling posture, and in the process, uh, presumably with the strange halting movements of one entranced, her left hand is suddenly locked into a position above the candle flame. He writes, Though fanned by a fairly strong breeze, the flame produced no effect upon the skin which it was touching. Astonished by this strange fact, I forbade anyone there to interfere, and, taking my watch in my hand, I studied the phenomena attentively for a quarter of an hour. At the end of this time, Bernadette, still in her ecstasy, advanced to the upper part of the grotto, separating her hands. 
the flame thus ceased to touch her left hand. Bernadette finished her prayer, and the splendor of the transfiguration left her face. Being a stubborn, empirical type, he later examines Bernadette's hand, finding no burn or tenderness, and calling for the same candle, he relights it as part of an experiment. I put it several times in succession under Bernadette's left hand, but she drew it away quickly, saying, You're burning me! I record this fact just as I have seen it without attempting to explain it. And uh, nor will I. We won't discuss the miracles associated with the water either. These were, in a sense, unrelated to Bernadette, who willingly endured her asthma and other afflictions into her final days. If science was symbolically appeased by the so-called miracle of the candle, the church finally lined up behind Bernadette when the being from the grotto finally identified herself. This came as no small relief to the local abbot, Dominique Peyramal, who, until this point, had not only disbelieved, but had ineffectually forbidden Bernadette to visit the grotto. The mysterious lady's refusal to identify herself as the Blessed Virgin became particularly vexing to him once she demanded a chapel be built on the site. But everything changed when, on the 25th of March, the lady announced... I am the Immaculate Conception. A phrase that Bernadette would have only known as a series of phonemes to be repeated back to a very pleased Father Peyramal, who would have explained to the girl that it means she embodies a freshly minted papal doctrine declaring the Virgin to be born without the taint of original sin. And with this affirmation of Vatican doctrine, the church was satisfied and miracles began to flow. Lord became Lord, and the prayers of local boosters and railroad tycoons eager to engage more passengers from all over Europe were answered. At the top of the show, I mentioned the uh, 50 or so shrines across the world reproducing the Grotto of Lourdes, but while these are mostly created directly under the auspices of the church, there are also religious grottos created outside of this context. I had intended to talk about the grottos created by outsider artists, but moved that content to the Patreon blog as we're running a bit long, but there's an even more interesting topic involving grottos created by another kind of non-professional artist, that is, children who once built grottos in England on what is called Grotto Day. These, at least originally, were ostensibly a form of religious shrine dedicated to St. James, one of the apostles whose feast was celebrated on August 5th under the Julian calendar and is now the 25th of July. These grottos, created by British children, were traditionally built of the shells from shellfish, little beehive-shaped constructions enclosing a candle. The shells were saved over the year or begged from fish markets. Like Guy Fawkes effigies, they were used as an excuse to collect money, with the kids who built them chanting to passers-by. Please remember the grotto. It's only once a year. Father's gone to sea. Mother's gone to fetch him back, so please remember me. It was uh, primarily a custom in London, reported first in the 19th century, as far as I can tell, and surviving into the 1950s uh, through World War II in its wake when 
A form of St. James grottos were built using rubble from bombed out buildings. Shells are always a beloved material in grotto construction, as we'll soon see, and St. James himself is connected to shells in a number of ways. He happens to be the patron of oyster harvesting, and his day is traditionally the first date on which oysters are eaten in Britain and America. A number of legends that supposedly explain this connection have been put forward, one suggesting that when the apostle's body was being transported by sea to its final resting place, it fell overboard in a storm, and when retrieved, was found to be covered with shellfish. Other stories have a horse or a knight or a bride falling into the sea and being rescued by James himself, and likewise found to be covered with uh, mollusks. I have a sense that these stories were uh, more recently invented to explain a better documented and older connection between the saint and shells, namely the use of a scallop shell as a symbol associated with pilgrimages to the tomb of the saint in Santiago de Compostela in northwest Spain. The Camino de Santiago de Compostela, or Way of St. James, was a major pilgrimage route from the Middle Ages into the present day, one that merged with routes followed by crusaders to and from the Holy Land, and stops along the way have long been marked with the symbol known as the Pilgrim's Scallop. Upon arrival, a symbolic shell was presented as a token indicating successful completion of the journey, and then would be proudly worn on one's cloak upon the trip back home. The grotto is constructed out of oyster shells on St. James Day by British children, were therefore originally said to represent an alternative way to honor the saint when this pilgrimage was not possible, and to collect a few coins. So thus far in looking at the grotto as associated with Christian devotions, you'll have noticed what a peculiar subset of caves it is. The grotto is never a deep cavern tunneling into a mountain. It's more dainty than that, a shallow, picturesque, and even artfully, and as we've seen, sometimes artificial, cave enclosing something sacred. This very specific subset of caves intersects quite precisely with the concept in ancient Greek culture called the Nymphium a place dedicated to the nymphs, specifically the naiads or water nymphs, a combination of cave and spring, as was the case with Lord. In the ancient Greek tale of Daphnis and Chloe, the writer Longus describes exactly such a place. There was in the neighborhood a great rock round on the outside and hollowed to a cavern within, and it was called the Grotto of the Nymphs. And within the grotto stood the statues of the nymphs, wrought in stone. The mouth of the grotto was at the very center of the great rock. Water bubbling from the spring formed a purling stream, which fed and cooled a meadow that stretched its smooth turf up to the mouth of the cave. And all around were hung up milk pails and flutes, pipes, and reed flutes the offerings of old shepherds in times gone by. It 
does sound a lot like the crutches hung up as ex-photos at Lourdes. While the nymphium described here is semi-natural, a natural spring and rock hollowed either by nature or man, it's not clear, nymphia could also be architecturally constructed around a natural spring. Enclosing a spring not only keeps the water and those fetching it cool, but also blocks blowing debris and animals. Better still, the shade and echo of trickling water creates a contemplative environment, especially so when arranged with representations of nymphs. In Hellenistic times, such spaces began to be embraced more as places of pleasure or ascetic contemplation, something that under the Romans gave birth to a few different forms. There were still grottos functioning as religious sanctuaries of the nymphs, and there were secular fountains all along the aqueducts decorated with nymphs or aquatic or sylvan motifs. But the most interesting evolution of the uh, nymphium was the private pleasure grotto. With these, great pains were often taken to create the illusion of a natural cave. The Italian author and architect Leon Battista Alberti described the techniques used in his 1452 series, 10 books on architecture. The ancients used to dress the walls of their grottos and caverns with all manner of rough work, with little chips of pumice or soft tibertine stone, and some I have known daub them over with green wax in imitation of the mossy slime which we always see in moist grottos. I was extremely pleased with an artificial grotto which I have seen of this sort, with a clear spring of water falling from it. The walls were composed of various sorts of seashells, lying roughly together, some reversed, some with their mouths outward, their colours being so artfully blended as to form a very beautiful variety. A notable first century example of the pleasure grotto was that created by Emperor Tiberius for his villa on the uh, Italian coast at Speronga. It showcased a magnificent collection of sculpture portraying Homeric scenes and characters arranged in an actual sea cave with frescoed walls and ceiling. The theatrical display was situated so as to be enjoyed from the triclinium or the dining area, which was constructed as a sort of island in the lagoon facing the cave. During extended festivities, guests could swim or take a boat from the floating triclinium to mingle in the grotto or admire the sculptures. According to the Roman writer Suetonius, whom we sourced extensively in our Nero episode, the grotto was the pride of the villa. But uh, pride, of course, cometh before the fall. Tiberius was dining at a country house called the Cavern, when some huge rocks fell from the roof of the natural cave, which served as a banqueting hall, killing several guests and attendants close to him. The 15th century architect Alberti, quoted earlier on the topic of simulated slime in ancient grottos, was researching these sites as there was a renewed interest in creating such grottos during his era. A famous example is the very theatrical grotto at Boboli Gardens in Florence, created by the architect and stage designer Bernardo Buontalenti. Replete with artificial stalactites and figures of nymphs and trickling water, it simulated an underwater environment 
completing the effect with a glass fishbowl, complete with fish, serving as a skylight. Moving into the 17th century, the grotto opened up from the form of a cavern to more open spaces arranged with niches and alcoves, only hinting at the uh, older cave-like designs. Some of these spaces were called water theaters, which incorporated a new sort of wonder, judo, or jockey d'aqua, that is, in English, water games. These were displays featuring movements or sounds created by hydraulics. An uh, entertaining example from the Villa Aldo Brandini in Frascati, Italy, is described by an English woman who visited back in 1821 when the displays were still functional. She wrote, Giants, centaurs, fawns, cyclops, and gods blew, bellowed, and squeaked without mercy or intermission. The strains that suddenly burst forth from Apollo and the nine muses, who were in a place apart, compelled us to stop our ears. When this horrible din was over, we were carried back to admire the now silent Apollo. I was sitting on one of the steps at the door, waiting on the pleasure of my companions to depart, when, to their inexpressible amusement, water started to spurt up suddenly beneath me, and all around me drenching me with a shower from the earth instead of the skies. Particularly famous for its playful water theatre were the gardens of the Villa d'Este built for a 16th century cardinal outside Rome in Tivoli, giving us Tivoli Gardens, a name that by the 19th century had come to be used as a sort of generic name for amusement parks, uh, thanks to a famous namesake in Copenhagen. But uh, probably the most elaborately engineered example, uh, perhaps unsurprisingly given their reputation for such things, comes from a German-speaking land. Built for the Prince Archbishop of Salzburg on the site of a natural spring, Halbrunn Palace. The Archbishop apparently had a mischievous sense of humor, as there are a number of trick fountains rigged to suddenly drench unsuspecting guests. But more remarkable are the 200 plus hydraulically powered clockwork automata, little puppets going about their business in a city diorama. There are also similarly mechanized and audible figures in a birdsong grotto and a water organ. With the dawning of the Romantic era, Baroque notions like reshaping nature into tightly engineered water theaters had given way to a return to the older naturalistic grottos simulating nature itself. As the home of Romanticism, Britain seems to have taken the lead here, with shell-decorated grottos being particularly popular. The construction of grottos in England was fueled by the aesthetic philosophy of the picturesque movement, which prized landscaping that mimicked the work of Romantic painters, spawning not only grottos, but um, other uh, garden follies, artfully ruined castles were constructed, ruined chapels, and an exotic smattering of uh, faux pagodas all became features of country estates. The uh, gardens of Hoxton Hall in Shropshire are a prime example of this, boasting not only a grotto consisting of a series of shell and fossil-lined chambers illuminated by stained glass windows, 
but also an array of fantastical towers and arches and bridges, as well as a hermitage uh, constructed to employ a quaintly costumed garden hermit to lend that extra picturesque touch. The uh, famous poet and satirist Alexander Pope enthusiastically created his own grotto on the grounds of his villa in Twickenham. Uh, He describes with delight the completed project in 1725. When you shut the doors of this grotto, it becomes on the instant from a luminous room, a camera obscura, on the walls of which all the objects of the river, hills, woods, and boats are forming a moving picture in their visible radiations. And when you have a mind to light it up, it affords you with a very different scene. It is finished with shells interspersed with pieces of looking glass and angular forms, and in the ceiling is a star of the same material at which when a lamp of an orbicular figure of thin alabaster is hung in the middle, a thousand pointed rays glitter and are reflected over the place. Probably the most famous grotto in Britain is in Margate on uh, England's southeast coast. The passages and rooms of shimmering show make one of Margate's most obstinate attractions. You've probably been impressed with the symmetry and marvellous detail of some of the designs. It's said that there are no finer examples of mosaic work anywhere in the country. However admirable the craftsmanship of the mosaics, it's likely the mystery of the place that made it famous. The uh, domed tunnel was only discovered during excavations in 1835, and nothing is known of its creator or creation. Uh, Since its discovery, it's become the subject of urban legends, describing it as everything from a Viking's tomb to a temple built by Druids. As for the later 19th century, we'll take one example that created for King Ludwig II of Bavaria, the so-called Mad King, responsible for building the castle Neuschwanstein, Germany's famous uh, fairy tale castle, as it's known, and inspiration for Disney's uh, iconic imitation. I would love to one day dedicate an entire episode to Ludwig II, but for now, his madness is quite nicely embodied in the so-called Venus Grotto, created for him in the late 1870s. It's not under Neuschwanstein, but under the smallest of the three palaces he built, Schloss Linderhof, the residence where he actually spent most of his days, and an unhealthy amount of time in this place in particular. So picture this, a small underground lake enclosed in a fantastic and completely artificial cave, garishly illuminated by light cycling through a rainbow of colors. Flecks of mica glint in the plaster stalactites as a wave machine gently ripples the surface and fountains trickle and splash. And in the middle of it all, in an extravagantly opulent gilt boat shaped like an enormous shell, Ludwig would be spending his blissful hours rowed about by a servant while a singer provided further ambiance singing arias from Richard Wagner's operas, of course. The room itself was inspired by Wagner's Tannhäuser, Act One, in which the eponymous knight finds himself a prisoner of love within the Venus mountain. 
By the way, the electric generators used to power the lights, waves, pumps, and fountain were a novelty at the time. The first, and for a while, only generators employed in the economically strapped kingdom of Bavaria. Matter of priorities. This has been a bit of an unusual episode, but hopefully one you still found interesting. I um, will, however, provide the requisite gruesome details to end our show, returning to the story of St. Bernadette of Lourdes. Not long after experiencing her visions, Subiru withdrew from the public eye, spending the rest of her life in the convent of the Sisters of Charity in Nevers, where she was buried in 1879. But... Thanks to those clamoring for her canonization, she was not to remain there, um, in the, the grave, that is. As part of the process, her body was disinterred in 1909 to determine whether it might be incorrupt, a uh, powerful sign of sainthood. Uh, we talked a bit about incorrupt saints in episode 23, and while there are certainly quite remarkable cases, the church does apply something of a sliding scale when considering the matter. On September 22, 1909, uh, full 30 years after she was buried, Bernadette's coffin was opened in front of a number of witnesses, including a surgeon by the name of Jodin. He reported, The head was tilted to the left. The face was dull white. The skin clung to the muscles, and the muscles adhered to the bones. The nose was dilated and shrunken. The stomach had caved in and was taut like the rest of the body. It sounded like cardboard when struck. So rigid was the body that it could easily be rolled over and back for washing. Bernadette was reburied, but as the canonization proceeded, the Vatican requested a second disinterment in 1919. This time, a Dr. Talon produced the report, noting, The body is practically mummified, covered with patches of mildew and quite a notable layer of salts, which appear to be calcium salts. The skeleton is complete and it was possible to carry the body to a table without any trouble. The skin has disappeared in some places, but it is still present on most parts of the body. Some of the veins are still visible. Not bad, considering 40 years, and as I said, a sliding scale. Um, A third and final check was made in 1925, reported on by a Dr. Comte. It has taken on a grayish tinge and is covered with patches of mildew and quite a large number of crystals and calcium salts. But the body does not seem to have putrefied, although this would be expected. As the state of the body did not quite match the rank and files notions of incorrupt, And because it was soon to be displayed in a glass sarcophagus in the convent chapel, it was decided to provide what church reports refer to as a light wax mask, for which molds were taken at the time. 
The uh, mask and coverings for the hands were crafted by the Parisian firm Pierre Imont, a company that had already garnered an international reputation for their waxworks, uh, namely uh, slinky, sophisticated jazz age mannequins, oddly enough. At that time, uh, Dr. Comte also extracted relics. Though he uh, operated under the encouragement of church officials, he comes across perhaps as bit over-enthusiastic in his report. I would have liked to open the left side of the thorax to take the ribs as relics and then remove the heart. But this was too much for the mother superior who expressed a desire for the saint's heart to be kept together with the whole body. Well, if not the whole body, most of it at least, as Comte did uh, end up harvesting quite a grab bag of relics, namely the rear sections of the fifth and sixth ribs, a piece of liver with a bit of diaphragm stubbornly clinging to it, and two patella bones, that is, kneecaps. The very kneecaps from the very knees upon which the 14-year-old visionary kneeled when she first beheld the beautiful lady in the grotto. Down to the grotto I followed in song Pilgrims all weary From journeys so long Rich and I hope everyone's been enjoying our show and that you might have the opportunity to Leave a review if you do. We haven't gotten one of those for a while, so we really could use one. As I mentioned at the top of the show, we have a special offer running from now until April 30th. A chance to win the 15-disc set, All the Haunts Be Ours, a compendium of folk horror. It's a splendid collection released in conjunction with the folk horror documentary, Woodland's Dark and Days Bewitched, which is one of the included discs. Not only does it include over 31 hours of folk horror films on Blu-ray, but also three CDs, including a reading of a classic Arthur Machen story and a 156-page book on the folk horror genre. I'll post a link with the list of included films and further details on the website in the current show notes. The collection is priced at $279, but one of you will get it for free. Uh, That is, if you subscribe at the $4 monthly level or above, and we'll announce that on May 1st. To uh, enter, you have to subscribe at the once-yearly plan, which actually saves 15% on what you would otherwise pay monthly. Uh, And as for our regular Patreon rewards, those subscribing at the $4 level or higher receive a short extra episode derived from materials in our library. Uh, Other rewards include access to our Patreon blog, downloads of the show's soundscapes heard under the narration, uh, show scripts, my Krampus book, the Bowden Sickle Candle, and unique hand-packed mystery kits, now including certain handcrafted items by yours truly. Uh, Pledge commitments begin at $1 and can be edited at any time. I'd like to thank our recent sign-ups now enjoying some of those rewards. The, those kind souls include Edward Simonton, Greta Bates, Geraldo Martinez, and Mars Bateman. 
Bone and Sickle is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer. Mrs. Carswell is played by Sarah Chavez, whose projects and writing related to death and culture you can track at sarah-chavez.com. Thanks so much for listening. 